We are outdoor ladies who hunt, fish, camp, and more, all while working in conservation. I am Julia Plugi with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Wagner with the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks. And we want to see you outdoors. Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. Tana and Rachel, it's and the first thing that comes to mind is the yummy food. You know, there's great debate. <laughs> I like everything. We all love food, right? Mm-hmm. I honestly... I honestly like apple pie the best. Is it bad to just go right to the dessert? We have a debate in our house about how you cook squash or acorn squash. Like, do you load it with marshmallows? Do you do the brown sugar and butter? Like what that is. So so I kind of steer clear of whatever we're having for the the actual meal and just go right to desserts and and just gorge there. Tana, what about you? Oh man, this makes me so hungry. So I am a sweet potato fan and I am of the brown sugar and pecans and butter on top. Keep that yeah, marshmallow stuff to yourself, not for me. <laughs> that is always one of my favorites. I love a good green bean casserole, but I will admit to making that year round. And so it's kind of lost some of its luster. It's just so good and it's so easy. But really what I'm after, ghee leftover sandwiches. With oh, yeah. The mayo and the cranberry sauce. Ooh, hits just right. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of that leftover turkey as well. Like just all the stuff that you can do with that leftover turkey. And you can burn it and dry it. As far as you can, but you can put enough stuff in it afterwards for leftovers and it tastes amazing. Yeah. Man, this is a bad time of the day to be having this conversation, you guys. We're going to be ready for lunch by 10, 15. So, you know, last year our family had the opportunity to enjoy eating wild turkey, you know, rather than that store bought food because they are wild, they roam free. You know, they usually have a darker meat that's leaner in the muscle Leaner to the taste, you know, it kind of gives a, leads to a richer, more intense flavor. You know, wild turkey is not for everyone, but our family really enjoys it. It's, it's lower than in the fat content. So when you're adding all that extra stuff later on, it's it's a little healthier for you there that we really enjoy, especially the fact that you, we harvest it ourselves. It adds a little bit extra special to that. So, you know, now as I sit here, our mouth is watering, thinking about a delicious bird at, you know, 10, 15 a.m., ready for ready for that meal. You know, but this year, as I head to the field with my fingers crossed, I have to have a back plan. Tana, you don't have that opportunity to go find a fall fresh turkey. Yeah, Julia, you're absolutely right. And luckily, I do have a little bit of turkey left over in the freezer from last spring. But man, am I savoring that. I don't want to cook it up just yet. I'm holding on to it. But yeah, beginning this fall, Kansas will not have a fall turkey hunting season. And that's because of declining populations across the state and even across the region. It was a really really tough choice because obviously, of course, we never want to take opportunities away from hunters. However, that decision was arrived at based on really compelling recommendations from staff and our biologists over the course of multiple, multiple public meetings. And so um, our commissioners did, in fact, vote to suspend that fall season. We do have a spring season still, but yeah, no turkey hunting this fall. Here in Nebraska, now it didn't, they didn't suspend the season altogether. It it looks a little bit different. the, The hunting season was shortened from October 1st to November 30th. So decreases that amount of time that we uh, it's open to harvest a bird. Also, our hunters are limited to 
only one permit. The bag limit for all hunters is lowered to one turkey. Uh, You know, Rachel, have you seen any changes in Iowa to your fall turkey season? We haven't. So we've always had a one turkey per permit in fall. We have, it's still open. Um, Dates have changed a little bit as far as bag limit or a season. We, we still have it, and I'm actually looking forward to getting out this fall and hopefully harvesting for our, our turkey dinner. The upcoming season hunting permit limits determine, you know, as Tana de- described, it's, it's determined through commissioner decision, which those decisions are um, made upon what the biologist and the experts, you know, they, they give them that information, and from that information, they decide what the hunting season should look like, protect the animal in itself for conservation efforts. That may be through brew count surveys, number of successful previous season tags, and just basic, you know, our research that our biologists are doing. So in recent years, land managers and hunters across Nebraska have reported declines in the number of wild turkeys, similar to other states across the USA, like Tana has mentioned. You know, as a landowner that typically witnesses many birds roaming, I too have noticed a decline in the population, and that's just outside of Lincoln. So my son really noticed it this past spring as he wasn't able to harvest a turkey. Yeah, and Julia, a while back, you had actually sent Rachel an article titled Wild Turkey Ecology in Western Nebraska. And what I'm understanding is the premise of that article really focused on a group of graduate students that were conducting research to learn why this decline is taking place. Because obviously, you know, hunter harvest is a component of that. But traditionally, at least in Kansas, for example, hunting in fall for that fall season has been pretty minimal and take from that population has been pretty minimal. So obviously, there's something else at play here when we're talking about the decline in turkey population. And because we all kind of nerd out over this topic, we wanted to bring their research team themselves to the She Goes Outdoors microphone so you can hear it straight from the folks that are boots on the ground doing this research and trying to better understand the source of this decline. Yeah, it definitely took a while to line up our schedules because they're out on the field quite a bit. We're out on the field. You know, we finally have made it work and that's fine. Like, I'm so excited to hear about it. And the later we wait, the more information they have to share anyway, so better off. Welcome to She Goes Outdoors, Jade Wavers and Robin Dowsner. Jade and Robin, we are so happy to have you on the mic with us. Introduce yourselves. We we always ask our, our guests to lay the framework. How did you get, where are you from? How'd you get into the field? What turned you on to turkeys of all species? And yeah, if you can give it a little background for our listeners. So we'll start with you, Jade. We are super excited to be to talk about our project. We have a lot, a lot to share, a lot to go on. But my name is Jade. I am from Nebraska originally. I grew up here in Lincoln, actually, and I did my undergraduate at UNL. So my degree is in fisheries and wildlife, and I just graduated in December of 2022. Right after graduating, I immediately joined the Turkey Crew because um, turkeys just happen to be one of my personal favorite game species. I grew up hunting and fishing as a kid, and I think that's really what drew me into this field and this career to begin with. Like, I just, I loved the outdoors. I think as a kid, I loved animals. Like, I was immediately drawn to them through hunting and recreational sports like that. I realized wildlife was more of my calling as opposed to working with captivity or anything like that. And I really just loved the hunting community as well, like in er- engaging with hunters and talking to landowners and being out there. And I decided to make a career out of it. So 
I, yeah, I learned about the Turkey Project and worked last year as a technician, um, the first field season. And now I am in the process of trying to transfer over into graduate school. So I'm extending what I know, leaning towards a graduate degree now on the project. Awesome. And Tana, Rachel, you might be excited to hear that Jade is also a, a hunter ed instructor here for us in Nebraska. And last year she was part of our Ladies Learn to Hunt. She was a mentor on that program and phenomenal young lady. And as she progresses through her studies in wildlife education. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's awesome to hear. And Jade, before we move on, because I know we have another guest we want to be sure to introduce, but you mentioned that you grew up such an animal lover but you do hunt. So I'm curious, you know, I kind of find myself in that vein as well, but I think some of our listeners might find themselves in a place where it's hard to reconcile loving animals, but also, you know, harvesting them from hunting perspective. Do you want to talk about how you reconcile that at all? I get this question a lot, especially with my degree being fisheries and wildlife. You know, there's all different types of people that pursue that degree and there's so many different things to do with it. So this is a conversation that I have with a lot of people. The way I think about it, I guess, because I grew I grew up hunting is the thing. So I was introduced at an extreme young age. So I was already just used to it as a child. But then as I grew up and, de- and kind of developed my understanding of hunting, it really transitioned from just a love of being outside to a love of being a part of something I think is greater than myself. So the way I see it is natural processes do occur, you know, in the wild. I think it's extremely humbling to be able to be a part of that. There's also just the benefits too of harvesting your own produce as opposed to purchasing it in the store. You know, I don't need to worry about chemicals or preservatives being added to my meat because I harvested it cleanly myself. And I also don't need to worry about how the animal is treated prior to it being processed like with cattle production or um, chicken production. I don't need to worry about how it was raised and how it was treated because I know it was a wild animal and I know that my shot was clean and ethical because I did it myself. So a lot of people kind of struggle with just being able to take or they think that they're harming the animal. That's why, well, that's why being an ethical hunter to me is so important because if your shot is ethical and it's good, then you're really not doing much harm to that, to that animal. And also, you know, natural processes. So like a deer, for example, what are the ways deer is going to typically die in nature? Well, it's going to get some awful disease that's going to take forever to, and it'll be a slow and you know, likely painful death, or it's going to be predated on, hit by a car, maybe even something much more tragic, I like to think, than what I, you know, than how I would harvest. Yeah, thanks for that perspective. All right, Robin, you're on the mic. Can you introduce yourself, just a little background? And So I'm Robin. I am from Northeast Iowa area near Dubuque. That's where Mm -hmm. I grew up. (laughs) And I am a master's student here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I just started being part of this project this August. So I'm still pretty new to the Nebraska side of things. But I got involved and interested in the Turkey Project. One, because I was just a lot like Jade. I have been an outdoorsy kid my entire life. My family has property. I grew up hunting. And so I grew up hunting turkeys and appreciated them for that aspect. But then 
through my work with the Iowa DNR, I got involved as a technician on their wild turkey project that they're currently doing. And then I became the project field coordinator for that over the last year. And then I was then able to have this opportunity here. So I've gotten to have multiple aspects of different states working with the turkeys and my appreciation just grows with them more because I just keep learning about them. Well, thank you both for all of the work that you are doing on turkeys. Turkeys are a species that are just so near and dear to my heart. And listeners, I really, really encourage you. Like it's one thing to see turkeys in a field, but it's another to sit and hear them spitting and drumming here, you know, get to see them strutting. I really encourage you, even if you have no intention of ever hunting, find somebody and go out and sit and watch turkeys this year. It is just such a magical experience. Go on and get out there not this fall obviously but in that spring season um take some time and watch and of course if you're not hunting and you can watch from a safe distance it is so cool so ladies thank you both for all of your hard work and let's dive into that work right now can you guys both just give us an overview of the project and what you're hoping to accomplish with your field experience this past summer and as we continue yeah definitely so like many other states the turkey population in nebraska has gone down quite a bit um i believe around the exact percentages is about their they've declined 45 percent since 2009 they've really taken a hit in less than two decades and so the main parts of our project is we're looking at their spatial movements and trying to figure out where they're moving and really using that to look at the hen movements especially because they are the ones that produce our future birds and so we're looking at poult production and what is affecting their nesting success and then we're also seeing how that applies to a lot of different aspects even with uh, how implications towards the hunting season in Nebraska are right now actually and how stuff lines up with that. It's a big project we were kind of talking to Julie about it before but Just to give you an idea, we have, well, as of right now, we have two graduate students officially on the project, two more we're trying to add, myself included, and then we will be hiring four technicians total by January and two more for the spring. So, wow. Yeah. To have that many experts and researchers on this project alone you know that tell that says a lot for the project yes it's it's a it's a big group of people and then we have three leading pis on the project all putting their brains together to help us and then we're partnered with the georgia crew um mike chamberlain he is an incredible mind and we're very fortunate to have his insight and advice and we're kind of modeling what we do after their projects in that state. And then we're partnered with Gavin Parks as well. We have funding from the Wild Turkey Federation. It's just a lot of people are involved in this project. So there's a lot going on and I, and there's a lot of objectives to it then as well. With so many graduate students, we all have our own projects then okay. that are wrapped into this. So I think Robin and I can talk about our projects, Absolutely. but then we can also go through kind of what our field season will look like. Cause it's, it's constantly changing. There's yeah. not really, <laughs> there's not really one main thing that we're looking at. 
a lot of different moving parts and pieces. So we'll dive into each one, maybe one at a time. Yeah, to, go know. for it. You know, if you want to start and put the mic back at you, Robin, go ahead and talk about your your piece of the project. Yeah, definitely. So the my focus on the project is I'm looking at gobbling chronology of the birds. So when the toms are doing their peak gobbling activity in the spring, And what we're doing for that is from the beginning of March all the way pretty much until August, I'm putting out autonomous recording units or ARUs. And so they're basically like trail cameras, but they're microphones. And I'm putting them out across our two research sites. So we have sites in the Southwest of Nebraska and sites up in the Northwest. And we are collecting all of the gobbling data from the birds in that area. And then that is being sent down to Georgia actually, because they have a learning neural network that they've built that learns to ID the gobbles that are recorded and then picks them out so that I don't have to do that by hand, which is really nice for me. You can imagine (laughs) the hours that you would spend listening. And then they send that data back to us and we're looking to see when is that peak gobbling activity? Because, you know, a big part of spring turkey hunting, hunters like to hear their birds. That's one of the main draws. And so we're looking to see is that peak gobbling activity actually happening during the hunting seasons that Nebraska has laid out? And then we are also looking to see if the gobbling activity has any correlation to the hens starting to initiate nesting and any implications there might be to that because with how wild turkeys work, they have a very complex hierarchy within their flocks. And so if the dominant bird, which is usually the one who is gobbling quite a lot, gets taken out of the mix, they don't continue breeding. They actually stop breeding and will struggle it out with each other to re-establish that hierarchy and then they'll start breeding again once that has been re-established. And so we're looking to see if that peak gobbling activity has any layover with when hens should be initiating nesting and if there is what we need to do to make sure those hens have their best chance at being able to get ready and start laying eggs as soon as possible so their nests have the best chance at success. You sharing that information regarding if the basically the the head Tom, like the king of all Toms, is removed out of the flock, then they're like, uh, okay, I've been fighting him the whole time for the ladies, but now that he's taken, what do I do? It kind of takes me back to this past hunting season where we're fairly confident that the lead Tom had been removed from the flock on in our pasture land. And then explains now why later as the season went on that even like a, a week later, two weeks later, that all of a sudden that flock has disappeared. They're not coming into the, the pasture. And then my son didn't have success. So yeah, that, you know, I kind of thinking back that that makes a lot of sense. They're a lot more complex than a oh. lot of people realize. So it's been oh. really cool to learn about that. Absolutely. While being part of this. I think, I think hunters too have a tendency to go towards that, you you call them boss gobblers, which yeah. you'll hear a lot of the hunters refer to them as, um, at least ones who aren't aware of that research, because a boss gobbler is going to be the biggest and most beautiful tom, typically, Absolutely. which is, you know, the one that hunters go for. Yeah, clearly, as Robin just described, that can have some consequences, too. It feels like I need to put a, like a sign on my pasture, no removal of the boss gobbler type thing, <laughs> or leave the boss gobbler alone, or Kyler gets the boss gobbler, something like that. I just want a t-shirt that says boss gobbler, honestly. Oh, you need <laughs> it. You need it. Yep, totally for you. <laughs> well, that's 
that's so fascinating. And what an interesting kind of balancing act too, between hunters and hunter success and, um, you know, the success of these birds and their population, because obviously these hunters are going toward these birds when they're in and exhibiting these mating behaviors, because that makes them easier to see they're strutting, they're doing these things. But of course, if we're taking birds too early or taking too many birds, then they aren't able to have that reproductive success. So that is quite the balancing act you all are trying to decode. And Robin, I have to ask, how did you... How did you decide that studying verbal calls, you know, that was the drive for this? Like, got this side that you wanted to go after discovering the boss gobbler, and it's fascinating. So I actually hadn't had much experience or even thought really about that side of research until I saw the position posted here at the college. Other projects with turkeys that I've been part of, they hadn't focused on gobbling activity at all yet. And I'd read some papers about it and thought it was really interesting, but there's still so many papers out there that the more you keep reading, you can always keep learning. And so when I saw this position, that is what made me be really interested in it because it was a facet of research I hadn't been part of yet. And There's been a lot of studies in the southeast more with looking at gobbling activity, but there hasn't been much at all in the Midwest kind of area. And so I really wanted to be a part of that and to just better my knowledge to have a project that I get to help others learn about. But then I'm also learning and gathering more skills on my part to make myself be a better researcher in the future. So that was what drew me to this. We were just discussing that the project has taken place in two different parts of Nebraska. And if you're not familiar with Nebraska or you're just, you know, listeners, you're just joining and hearing us that the terrain is a little bit different. Like the everything is a little bit different in the two parts of the state that you're you're doing this study at, uh, maybe explain the two parts. And if you want to split them up between the two of you and kind of what the goal is because of this location. Yeah, I can talk about the Northwest mm-hmm. because that's that's kind of the site that I'm most familiar with. You know, as graduate students, Robin and I will both be responsible for each site, but we're kind of taking more prominent lead over one versus the other. So I'm, I'm primarily stationed in the Northwest, otherwise known as the Pine Ridge region of Nebraska, which those of you who are not familiar with Nebraska would never expect, honestly, a place like the Pine Ridge being located there. You know, Nebraska is known for being a flat landscape, not much going on, basically just filled with cornfields, which (laughs) I mean, for a majority of Nebraska, that is the case. But well, then, Kansas and yeah. Iowa too, right, ladies? <laughs> right. Yep, yeah. Same thing. Yes. Just, you know, typical Midwestern mm-hmm. landscape, I suppose. You make it all the way to the very northwestern tip of Nebraska. You get these beautiful bluffs and buttes and one of our research sites is. So I'll actually be stationed in Chadron, Nebraska, but our turkeys travel all throughout the Pine Ridge. So I'm covering that entire area. Yeah. It's awesome up there. Yeah. Um, I've got to be out there a few times now and I really love it. I've already told Jade, we have to switch back and forth a little bit throughout (laughs) the field season so I get a chance to be up there. But then I will be mainly stationed in our Southwest unit, which is near the Trenton McCook area in Southwest Nebraska. And That is more ag-based, and that is part of the reason why the two sites got chosen is to be able to look at those differences in landscape. But there is still enough of terrain down there. It's quite hilly. You get some pretty big ravines going on down there, too, that 
makes it just as fun and challenging down there. It's just more ag-based and crop fields. And is there any research then that's more towards the flat grounds of Nebraska or just basically those two areas? Yeah, we don't have anything in eastern Nebraska as of right now. All right, Jade, we still have to hear. what What's your research on? I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my project. I won't go into depth with it too much because it's still in the works. And it actually doesn't really have anything to do with turkeys. Oh, so, <laughs> I, oh. I know. I'm <laughs> sorry. I kind of just using, I'm using the Turkey Project's resources basically is what yeah. I'm doing. Okay. So I am still 100% dedicated and involved in the Turkey team. But um, once I'm a graduate student, uh, my main focus will be on predator community composition throughout the Northwest and Southwest. So um, again, not tying that into turkeys or the turkey population per se, but I will be deploying trail cameras out in the area and um, essentially just doing like a presence absence of what's out there. Um, Looking at both meso predators like raccoons, skunks, and possums and stuff like that. And also the presence of um, apex predators like mountain lions or bobcats. Yeah, and then Jade is also, while she's out there, she's helping us with all the other work that goes into the Turkey Project. And so there's a spatial side. That's one of our graduate positions that we're still filling that looks into their movements. That's why we're putting the little transmitters. We put backpack transmitters on our turkeys that we catch, and we're following them around all year, especially the hens. And she, Jade is helping collect all of the vegetation data and helping with trapping as well. So she's very involved with the project still. And then We have our other graduate position that Deepika is working with the genetics side of everything and looking into dominance aspects. And so lots of moving parts. Yes, a lot. We can just break it down one step at a time, I think would be the simplest way (laughs) to go about it. Because we're out there for seven, seven to eight months out of the year. And so you spent a lot of time out there this summer. Yes, yes. Yep. A lot of time. Um, We basically don't come back until the turkeys let us until (laughs) until they stop, until they stop nesting and stuff like that. And we can wrap up the nesting data. Robin and I and the other graduate students and all our technicians We will set out for the field at the beginning of January. And so that will be phase one would be our trapping season. So trapping will go until the beginning of January to mid to end February, possibly even beginning of March. March. If If the weather and birds cooperate, we'd hopefully be done sooner rather than later. Getting all of our transmitters out and then... Once that trapping period's done, we have a little bit of a lull in time because they're still in their winter flocks. But then that's when we would start putting out my ARUs to start getting that up so they're ready to start recording as soon as the toms start gobbling. And then we move into our busiest part of the year is breeding season starts. Mm -hmm. And so with those transmitters that are on the hens, we are tracking every nest attempt that they make and looking at if they're successful or not, and whether or not the nests are successful or they fail, we then go out to each one of those nests and we are collecting the eggs and any samples that we can from the nest for genetics and to look at the success or fail rate. And then we are gathering vegetation data on those nests and then eventually on the broods that do happen. And that happens from April all the way up into August. That wow. is 
what we're doing because turkeys can have multiple nesting right. attempts. And so if a bird keeps trying, we got to keep following her and collecting okay. her data. And then once we have poults on the ground, we are doing brood surveys as well. We're doing presence absence so we can see what our poult ratio is going sure. on in Nebraska. Oh, cool. So cool. You know, from a big picture perspective, other than hunter pressure, what are some other factors that are affecting that decline in turkey populations? Or what are some of the other questions that are being looked at, whether it's by your team or by others? Good question. Until we have our research complete and data collected, I, I don't think we can confidently speak for Nebraska anyways on, like, we can't give reasons yet. That's But what we're kind of looking into, though, is habitat loss and habitat fragmentation is probably one of the main leading drivers is what yeah and i yeah i think that's kind of what you're seeing all across the u.s you know that's Mm -hmm. just that's always that's always kind of the go-to answer yeah especially because turkeys are ground nesting birds everything has access to the ground and so birds especially the hens need that right type of habitat for their nests to be successful and that like jade said a lot of different states that is the big thing they're looking into is the habitat and making sure that we have you know corridors for these birds to travel through even if you have good patches of habitat if the birds can't get from one to the next that doesn't do them much good and then I think there's we're looking at the opportunity to test for this but a big thing affecting turkeys across the nation right now is LPDV which is lymphoproliferative proliferative disease disease virus and that is really knocking turkeys out it's a pretty major disease happening there's not a lot of understanding quite yet how it affects them and how they're getting it or where it came from and so I know a lot of other states are really looking into that to seeing if that is able to affect poults even through transferring from the hens and so I know there's a lot of work with that happening as well. Ladies, that's interesting to note because I think we could all probably say, I'm sure it's the same in Nebraska and Iowa, if we were to jump on Facebook right now and join one of the Facebook hunting groups out there, most of the time what you see people pointing to in terms of turkey population decline is those nest predators. Like that's what Mm -hmm. people tend to blame all the time, especially with declines in trappers and things like that. But it's interesting to hear you all relate that back to the habitat perspective of these animals have evolved to avoid that level of predation if they have the right resources available to them possibly hypothesis still I realize everything likes to eat eggs that's just a way of life it's an easy thing but those hens have a lot easier of time protecting their nests if they have the right habitat and so that's something that we want to you know push forward that it's more if predators have the opportunity because of easy habitat that would be affecting it more so than anything and I know that's Iowa their study, that's a big thing that's being looked at on their side of the turkey project is the habitat that would be making it easier for that predation to happen. I feel like this is similar to where we were, you know, this is this is what has led to so much effort and work with Pheasants Forever and in our wildlife agencies that this is this happened similar to the pheasants and now we're working mm-hmm. 365 growing and in establishing that habitat for the pheasants possibly what we're going to be doing the same in the future for for our turkey population back to the predators it's so easy to point fingers at predators and that's kind of what led me to the interest in my project so again i'm i'm not looking at what's predating on turkey nests 
but just trying to get a better understanding of predator composition and, you know, what's out there, essentially. You know, predators have never been researched in the state of Nebraska. We have no idea of what's actually out there and, and what the communities look like. So it's just easy to say that they're overpopulated or that they're the problem, but we don't actually have any any data on data. on what's going on. Another aspect with, you know, even when the hunters look at the population decline, what gets forgotten about very easily, especially in the Midwest states, is that turkeys in Nebraska were extirpated by 1915. They were gone. Mm -hmm. And so the population we have now is from reintroduction efforts and with all reintroduction efforts and then just with all populations of any type of wildlife, you have boom and busts. We also could just be looking at one of the factors affecting this decline could be that we hit our peak after the reintroduction and, you know, there's that nice bell curve that always gets talked about with populations. Eventually it levels off, it goes down a little bit. And so that very well could be a factor affecting this as well. There's many other things affecting the populations, I think, as all these studies are showing. It's not just one problem. There's many, but I think that's yeah. a part that gets forgotten about a lot too is we made the population here. And so now there's going to, we're on the tail end of that reintroduction. It's definitely not as easy as just saying, oh, you know, the turkeys aren't being able to fully develop because the predators are eating them all or the turkeys, you know, they don't have enough habitat. So they're not, you know, it's not, it's not that simple. You can't just point fingers at one single factor. There's multiple things playing. And I think you guys have, have kind of brought this to light in your conversation, but it's also fascinating to me that different states are not only taking different pieces, but different focus points. And by the sounds of it, y'all are fairly collaboratively working on this. I, I think happens all the time in, in the bigger conservation world. You know, we realize that Turkey don't recognize state borders. They don't recognize, you know, country borders. They they go where the habitat and, and those factors allow them and, and to, to move. So it's, it's kind of interesting to me. You talked a little bit about uh, Georgia and those folks doing some research. You talked about Iowa and Nebraska. And we know that Kansas is also doing um, turkey projects. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the overall collaboration be across the states? There has been a lot, as we've said, and you pointed out, and we actually just got reached out to a few weeks ago from Kansas. They're doing, you guys are doing your turkey project as well. And they're reaching out to us and we're trying to set up a meeting to help them see what has gone right, what's gone wrong for us. Because especially with a project like this, where a species is being affected so largely across such a vast area, that connection between states and agencies is really important. And so we're trying to help Kansas out. And then Georgia crew with Dr. Chamberlain down there, what they are actually doing is all of the projects that they are partnered on, they are actually making basically just the master of all databases of all the turkey data that's being collected across the entire country if they're partnered with them. And it's going into this database so that everyone has access to it. And so that if a state doesn't necessarily 
have a turkey project going on, they can look at that data and see how it can be applied for their managers. If they aren't able to start a project, they can see what other states nearby are doing. Then they can see that, oh, you know, Nebraska has been doing a project. We're a close border state. We can reach out to them and see what implications they found, how are their managers working with that data, and then they can apply it. Yeah, it really helps not reinvent that wheel, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, what, you know, if Nebraska or Kansas or Iowa is doing these projects, the results in these other states may be very similar. Or how do they need to tweak that research that so that whatever you have discovered, maybe they need to adjust it in some way for a different state. So Rachel said that collaboration is extremely important because we're all in it for this national effort. I'm super pleased with how kind of across the U.S. we're all working together on this because, yeah, you're seeing this decline. It's not just in Nebraska or it's not just in Kansas. It's kind of it's everywhere. And so, yeah, super happy to see everyone working together on it. Okay, I have another question. As a non-biologist, as someone that has not done research, you talk about in January, you head to the field. What does that look like? I mean, are you literally with backpacks out in the field all day? Are you coming back? Are you <laughs> camping? Like, wh- what does that look like? I have an image in my head, but I'm guessing it's it's so, not the case. I'd so, say it's uh, intense. Lots of layers are involved. So yeah. we... Thankfully, work with really good people across our research sites. And so they help us establish our trapping sites with putting bait out and then getting our traps there and making sure our turkey flocks are there. And then once we think we actually have a pretty good go at catching birds, we're waking up at three or four in the morning, depending on how far away we have to drive. We're getting out to our sites. We're finalizing what needs to be set up. And then we are sitting in blinds with some nice heaters trying to stay warm. It can be all day. If the birds aren't cooperating, if the weather isn't nice, we're out there all day. And then we trap our birds, hopefully, and then you got to process them. So we're out there when it's very, very cold and Mm -hmm. dark. And yeah, Yeah. I think honestly, the winter season too is maybe one of our, I don't want to say easier ones, but we're not. We're not hiking and trekking as much. The birds in Nebraska, their wintering groups are typically on private land, um, usually next to some feedlot or something, because that's where they can find food. So they're not hard to access, typically. It isn't until they disperse uh, closer to the spring, and they just go everywhere. That's, That's when we're boots on the ground, backpacking all day long in all different types of temperatures and environments. That's when we're, that's when we're really test and, and pushed as far as field work goes. Yeah. And Jade bring brought up a really good point that I want to add to is that most of our work is being done on private lands and with all of the projects that are happening with turkeys right now, it won't be able to happen without our private landowners. They're really excited, especially in Nebraska, to know what's happening with these birds. They want to know we've had so much support and so we would not be able to do our project without the private landowners helping us along the way and giving us access. And so we're really appreciative for their support and their excitement with this project. now 98% privately owned. I think okay. it, it was it 97. Up. I think it's, I'm under the impression it's 90. I'll hear people go back and forth between right. 97, 98, but 
it's my understanding that it's, it's now 98% yeah. privately in owned. In Kansas so. and Iowa, you look very similar in those high percentages of privately owned land too. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. You know, with all the intensity of this project, it takes a lot of funding, right? Mm -hmm. And so you had mentioned like the large dollar that it has taken to do the, this project. Maybe let's tell the listeners like, what it's costing, what is the budget for this project and where do those funds come from? Yeah. So I believe the official amount, at least for last field season, it was $2.8 million. Luckily is more of what our, uh, what the principal investigators on the project deal with as far as the budgeting goes and sure. everything. But with that large sum, it, it does come from multiple areas. Uh, Game and Parks is funding some of it and the Wild Turkey Federation is funding it. And we have some federal funds coming in as well. We partner with the co-op unit. We have some funding from there. So multiple different places. That funding, it goes into our graduate positions, our technician positions. It goes into our equipment that we need for our projects. It is really being used across the board for anything you can think of, getting our trapping equipment. We need our telemetry equipment for our backpack transmitters. And that's where a good chunk of it goes as well because we yeah. have a lot of transmitters that we're putting out there. And so we want to make sure they're a really good type yeah. of transmitter so we can get all of our data off of them. I think that I'd, I'd agree with that for sure, Robin. The transmitters and then I, the crew, the large crew that we have and our field housing. is Habitat stamps, friends, habitat stamps, yes. permit dollars. So uh, we, we stress. Yes. Thank you, hunters. Yes. yes thank, thank you, you. hunters. <laughs> we stress that often in our podcast that those funds coming from your habitat stamp and the permit dollars that you purchase, that is what is supporting these types of projects. So thank you to them. Thank you, hunters. Well, this has been truly fascinating. I'm so excited. And I know we don't quite have all of the results yet, but ladies, any insight into what the future is going to look like for these projects or for the turkey populations? Are you feeling hopeful? Are there still a lot of questions remaining? I'm feeling pretty hopeful. I think just the amount of collaborators we have, and there's so many brilliant minds across the board on these projects that I think we're going to be getting a really good idea of what's affecting these birds and then what is and isn't working in the various different areas that these studies are happening. So I'm optimistic that we're going to have a pretty good idea and know what steps need to be taken so that everyone can keep enjoying these birds and that they can keep thriving on the landscape. Yeah, I think the I think the biggest challenge will be and I'm, I'm glad we're looking into this, but habitat, you know, that's mm -hmm. that's a hard one, especially in Nebraska, where it's so ag dominated, you know, looking into that a little bit more and what the habitat requirements are for wild turkeys to have a thriving population. I think that will be the biggest kind of hurdle to overcome. But I'm super pumped about Robin's study and looking at goblin chronology, because I think that's too. a big one, too. Yeah, especially in the Pine Ridge, the Pine Ridge region actually has one of the greatest like hunting pressures across the U.S. Hunt, you'll have hunters travel 14 hours to come hunt in the Pine Ridge. So it's very, very heavily hunted. Mm -hmm. um, so and her her data looking at 
that a little bit more, I think is going to be also, that's going to be a game changer for the population. I'm just excited to, to hear the results. Like <laughs> I'm going to be sitting on the edge. I mean, I, I get, I'm guarantee it'll be a while, right? It'll be a while. Yeah. But. Yeah. Cause we, we have three field seasons, so there's, we'll be out in the field for two more years. Be, yep. And then we'll be collect analyzing the data for okay. the following few years. And in the meantime, Jade, you're going to be diving into your project as well, right? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, well, that's the plan anyways. Yep. Yeah. I'm super excited for that. Regardless of a graduate student being added on, we are deploying trail cameras out into the field. That's part of the, that's part of the project, regardless of if a graduate student is in charge of that or not. So it is data that we'll be collecting. Well, I look forward to an update from both of you um, and wish you all the luck as you continue your research. That's so fascinating. And thanks again for all your hard work and also just being wonderful examples of women in STEM. You know, we need that representation. So I just appreciate you both. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks. Yep. Yeah. It was phenomenal information. Any last words from you, Rachel? I appreciate them jumping on the mic with us and and sharing a little insight for the non-biologists on on the line like myself it it really helps give a little insight into what the world looks like we always hear about oh i did this research project but to actually understand the hours the commitment the time frame um the blood sweat and tears if you will it, it really puts into perspective and and on behalf of hunters and and just conservation enthusiasts across the country, we we do appreciate all the work and and time that you're putting into this. And to echo Tana's words, it's wonderful to see females taking the reins and and just leading some of these projects and and just the. I think Robin said it, the brilliant minds that are involved in this project. It's so cool to hear. We often just get like a quick little summary write up about what's going on and don't really understand all of the pieces that are involved and all the, the moving parts. So uh, thank you both for, for joining us. And we look forward to hearing updates, even if it's in six years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I think we'd both love to speak yeah. on our project more again sometime in the future. All right. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to She Goes Outdoors. As always, we have these amazing guests. And thank you, Rachel and Tana, for jumping on this morning to hear about the Nebraska Project that's also leading into the national to the national level as well. Listeners, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast dial. Give us a like. Tell your friends all about our She Goes Outdoor podcast. But until then, we will see you outdoors.